0: Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. Every week of the podcast alternates between an interview with guests or multiple guests and a solo episode where I unpack some scholarship. This week is going to start a launch of a little mini-series on gender bias in computer science education. And I'm starting with a paper titled Eliminating Gender Bias in Computer Science Education Materials. And this paper was written by Paula Medel and Vahab Pornashband. And my apologies if I mispronounce any names. In the show notes, you can find a link directly to this particular paper. And if you click on the author last names, you'll be able to read some of their other works as it will take you to their Google Scholar profile. All right, so here's the abstract for this particular paper. Quote, low female participation in computer science is a known problem. Studies reveal that female students are less confident in their CS skills and knowledge than their male counterparts, despite parallel academic performance indicators. While prior studies focus on limited apparent factors causing this lack of confidence, our work is the first to demonstrate how, in CS, instructional materials may lead to the promotion of gender inequality. We use a multidisciplinary perspective to examine profound but often subtle portrayals of gender bias within the course materials and reveal their underlying pedagogical causes. We examine three distinct samples of established CS teaching materials and explain how they may affect female students. These samples, while not a complete display of all gender inequalities in CS curriculum, serve as effective representation of the established trends of male-centered representation, imagery, and language that may promote gender inequality. Finally, we present easily implementable, alternative gender equitable approaches that maximize gender inclusion." End quote. That abstract does a pretty good job of summarizing the paper itself. Now, if I summarize this into a single sentence, I would say that this study examines three examples of, quote how stereotypes about women can manifest themselves through class materials, end quote. That quote's from page 411. So the paper begins with a short introduction that kind of talks about some of the ways that stereotypes can negatively harm women. In particular, they talk about how it affects confidence in relation to computer science. So even when women are performing just as well as men, they are consistently having lower rates on their confidence rating in fields like computer science. So after the short introduction, the paper talks about the different materials that they analyze. So in particular, they analyze how names are represented within CS materials, they talk about imagery within CS materials, and then they also talk about pronouns within CS materials. So in the paper, it first begins by describing a common problem in cryptographic protocols. So in this particular example, it's basically people sending messages to each other and showing how people can intercept those messages or change them or whatever. So what they did for the analysis is they took the names of the people within this particular example and they associated it with either a positive, a negative, or a neutral stance. So for example, Eve was labeled as an eavesdropper and they were intercepting messages between two other people and able to read those messages that were being sent like through the internet. So in that instance, Eve, being a female name, being labeled as an eavesdropper and doing something negative, that one would receive a negative. Similarly, Mallory, who was associated with a man in the middle attack, was also associated negatively. However, males tended to be associated with more positive things. So like Walton was the protective warden. Now in these examples, they tended to have whatever the first letter of the name was associated with whatever it was that they were doing, whether it was eavesdropping, or warden or whatever. So E for eavesdropping, W for warden, etc. Now the authors are arguing, well, you could have used any kind of name for this, whether it be like a general neutral name, such as Alex or Chris, just as easily as you could have associated positive traits to females and negative traits to males. But in general, what they were finding is females were associated with a negative and males were associated with positive. So one more example of this that is not only example of some gender biases, but also ableism, is the Sybil attack. So the Sybil attack was previously known as pseudo-spoofing, and it's some kind of an attack where, quote, identities are forged to subvert a reputation system in peer-to-peer networks, end quote. So that's from page 412. So an example of a Sybil attack might be something like creating a bunch of false accounts and giving false reviews on a service, or creating bot accounts on like, something like Twitter and then promoting things or arguing against things. So you're making it seem like there's this mass amount of people who are asking for or recommending or arguing against something, but really it might just be one person or a small number of people who are engaging in what is commonly referred to as a Sibyl attack. Now, the reason why this particular example is brought up in this paper is that, quote, the name was inspired by the book Sibyl about the treatment of a woman diagnosed with disassociative identity disorder as a result of physical and sexual abuse. The representation of a mentally ill woman as the field standard term for an attacker is not only insulting, but harmful by projecting negative stereotypes about women." End quote, from page 412. And by the way, disassociative identity disorder was formerly referred to as multiple personality disorder. In case you're unfamiliar with it, there's just a clarification. Basically the same idea, new term. So with these examples, whether it be the Sybil attack or Eve the eavesdropper in the cryptography example, the authors are basically arguing we need to analyze how we're portraying different genders within the materials that we're using. Now, here's the reason why. So here's a quote from page 412, quote, by comparing characters with positively or negatively associated roles, we found clear gender discrepancies. There are more female characters than males. However, this does not indicate fair inclusion. In fact, of the four characters with positive connotation, only one is female. By comparison of the nine total negative roles, six are female, and three are male. Thus, of eight female associable characters, less than 13% of them are good compared to 50% of associable male characters." Okay, so after kind of laying down some evidence that supports the idea that, hey, there's some gender bias here in how we're using these names and the associations we're giving to them, they talk about what are some ways that we could be more equitable. So one potential solution is to replace names with gender-neutral names. However, the authors argue that there are still associations with particular genders for different names. So for example, the name Alex. If I have a friend who identifies as female named Alex, I might associate Alex with female more so than I do with Alex with male or non-binary. But if I have a friend named Alex who identifies as male, I might associate it more with male. So instead of using gender neutral names, the authors actually recommend using animals. So for example, The eavesdropper could be the owl. And instead of going with Sybil, we could say chameleon because chameleons change colors and assumes varying identities. Now the authors do say that, quote, due to the universal nature of animal representations, educators from different cultural and language backgrounds can use this method to teach their students in a relatable way, end quote. While I understand what they're trying to say, I disagree. So some cultures view animals differently than other cultures. For example, cultures that use some of the stories from the Bible about snakes being sneaky and subversive and manipulative and whatnot might differ than other cultures that represent snakes in a positive light. So as an example, some cultures actually view snakes within a sacred role or as representation of changes in cycles by the shedding of skin. In other words, not negatively. So that's my one small minor disagreement with the, what they're indicating. However, in general, this recommendation of using animal characters instead of people names makes sense in relation to the gender biases that they're trying to avoid. Okay, so the next particular example that they talk about is imagery that is used within materials. So for example, there's an image named Lena that is often used for image processing examples, and it is actually an image of a woman from a Playboy magazine, and they cropped it so that it's that person's bare shoulders, and above. And this image is frequently used in presentations, publications, etc., when discussing image processing examples. Now, here's a quote from page 413. Quote, such imagery objectifies women by projecting stereotypes that emphasize their physical appearance rather than their mental values. Objectifying imagery affects women's confidence and therefore academic performance in two ways, deteriorating their perceptions of self and lowering others' perceptions of them, end quote. Now the authors point out that some people have actually flipped the image, so it was like a a exposed version of a male in a similar way in that they cropped it at the shoulders and above and had a male model as the example, but the authors argue that this is still an example of objectifying members of a different gender. So some people have recommended, well, instead of using sexualized imagery, how about we instead have positive imagery of different genders? So for example, having a picture of a woman holding a trophy or a woman in leadership. But the authors actually recommend, instead of using pictures of people, to instead use pictures of monuments, such as like pyramids or architecture or things like that. The authors argue that this can help eliminate gender biases and that when you need to use facial images as examples, so for example, if you are creating materials that's talking about facial recognition and you need a picture of a face, then recommend that using some kind of a picture that empowers people rather than objectifies them. Now, I totally agree about the point of avoiding objectification of genders, but I just want to point out that there's some debate about whether or not this is a form of objectification or a form of empowerment. I'm personally not well versed enough in that kind of scholarship, in that area of study, to be able to explain more, nor am I a woman or identify as it. I Identify as non-binary, by the way. But I completely agree that we should steer away from sexualized imagery in course materials, as I think that is particularly problematic, or at least can be, depending on the context and whatnot. So the third area that they're analyzing is language. So in particular, they talk about examples of pronoun use. So using only he, only she, he or she, or the singular use of they. While some people prefer to use he or she, or he and she, when referring to groups of people, or just some like anonymous pseudo person in some kind of example, The authors instead recommend that you use the singular they pronoun to refer to an unspecified gender. Now, as a non-binary individual, the pronoun they is the pronoun that most aligns with my own gender identity, but I personally don't have a preference, so you can use he, she, they with me, so it doesn't really matter to me. However, if you use they, it at least moves outside of the binary. It does not put a particular gender within a positive or negative light. It's more ambiguous. And it again accounts outside of the gender binary. So that recommendation totally relates to me and I highly recommend it. Now as educators, some of the things that we need to think about is the ways that we speak with our students. So it's not just in the materials that we submit. So not just the names, not just the imagery, not just the pronouns on the assignments that we give, but how we actually speak to people. So for example, a lot of YouTubers will use the what's up guys or whatever at their intro. And it's that use of guys that can become problematic. So I know some teachers who will avoid that and say good morning boys and girls or whatever, something like that, but again that then promotes the binary assumption with genders and makes non-binary trans individuals uncomfortable, or at least can, so we can avoid that by saying like good morning, blank, just in there, or something else, or using some kind of other group identity. So as an example of this, when I was originally creating the videos for boot up where I walk through step by step how to do stuff in Scratch that kids are going to use. was very intentional with the opening line that I started with. So every single video I start with, welcome back fellow coders. So it was a very intentional set of four words. I went with coders because it's gender neutral. It's also saying, hey, you are a coder, you are a programmer, you can do computer science. And by saying fellow and saying, hey, I can program, you can too. So it was trying to avoid any kind of gender associations, basically saying, hey, welcome back to this video. I'm a coder. You're also a coder. Although some people might argue that I'm thinking way too much about word choice, it can have a huge impact. So speaking of impact, the authors took their suggestions and they actually implemented it into an experimental group that received the treatment, i.e. the replacements of people names with animals and the imagery of the sexualized woman with architecture or structures, and then replacing the pronouns with the singular they. So that's the group that received all those treatments. And then a control group, which was a class that just had the normal CS materials with these gender biases in them. Now what they ended up finding is that there was improvement for female students in terms of their confidence, while male students in either the experimental or the control group did not have any kind of statistically significant change in their confidence. So it did not negatively impact them, but it positively impacted females in terms of their confidence. So again, as a quick summary of the paper itself, they looked at names in course materials, they looked at imagery in course materials, and they looked at pronouns in course materials. Their overall recommendations were to avoid names and instead use animals, to avoid imagery of sexualized genders and instead use something like a structure, ideally a structure that is not like phallic-like or gendered, And then to use the singular they instead of he or she for your pronouns. As always, at the end of these unpacking scholarships, I like to share some lingering questions or thoughts, or sometimes rants like a couple weeks ago. So one question that I have that I honestly don't know and don't have an answer for is, is the shift towards animals and monuments a form of dehumanizing computer science? In other words, are we taking the human aspects out of it? Are we making this technological thing even less human than it already can be at times? And that... I honestly don't know. So I'm just kind of thinking out loud. Now the question that I have is when creating or sharing materials with students, what kind of demographic balances do you strive for? So are you trying to demonstrate equal relationships, match demographic proportions, or are you leaning more toward marginalized identities to counter the trends? So for an example related to gender, and unlike the article, I'm going to include non-binary within this. So if you're trying to go for equal relationships, are you going to have one-third female representation, one-third non-binary representation, and one-third male representation? Or if you're going for matching demographic proportions, are you going to go for, these are hypothetical numbers, 50% female, 1% non-binary, and 49% male representation? And if you're going to go lean towards more marginalized identities to counter the trends, so for example, leaning towards 70% female representation, 20% non-binary representation, and only 10% male representation to counterbalance the overabundance of males within CS materials. And whichever direction that you end up going, when might an approach like this unintentionally communicate messages that a certain demographic is not welcome within the CS community? In other words, does the pendulum then shift the other way? So if we look at gender within CS and say, well, there's an overabundance of representation of males, should we then shift the pendulum so that we mainly focus on females' non-binary representation? Does that then unintentionally say males are unwelcome in CS education? And just like my question about dehumanizing, I don't know. Again, just thinking out loud. And it's something that I would love to see more research on and more conversations on within the field. So my last question this is not a question that is tied to this particular study, but gender imagery analysis in general. So the question is, how might we as a field start engaging in conversations around gender without making assumptions about people? Now, the reason why I say this is because I sat in on a presentation once where somebody started playing a video of a classroom and the imagery within it, and their commentary on the imagery was making assumptions about the genders that were represented. Now, if you looked at it, there were a lot of male-presenting individuals in there in terms of the ways that they were dressing, in terms of their hairstyles, etc and the comment was that this was a male-dominated class. However, I would argue we actually don't know if that was a male-dominated class. Without actually asking the people within that imagery, what we don't know is the class could have, in fact, been dominated by non-binary and trans individuals, and we don't know until we actually do more than a surface-level analysis of what we're seeing. Now, I say this to say we should dive deeper into these gender discussions, but also in recognition of the larger point was that yes, CS is largely dominated by males. Wholeheartedly understand that. So those are just some of my lingering thoughts related to the overall topic of this particular paper. I enjoyed reading this paper and I enjoy these kinds of analyses. So I highly recommend reading it if it also interests you. Again, you can find it in the show notes. If you enjoyed this particular episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or colleague as it helps spread the word about CS education and research. Stay tuned next week for another interview and the following week for another Unpacking Scholarship episode. I hope you're all having a wonderful week and are staying safe.